The teaching text for today comes from Matthew 25, 14, 14 through 29. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold <clears throat> brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. <clears throat> the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here, it, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever ha has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I mean, you can be seated. I love the movie Tombstone. Anybody like Tombstone? Okay. I just, I don't watch any new movies. I just rewatch the same ones again and again. There's this great scene in Tombstone, which is based on the true story of Wyatt Earp and, and Doc Holliday and Earp's brothers, where uh, the cowboys, who are the bad guys in the movie, come after the Earps because they're trying to establish justice in Tombstone. And uh, they shoot up a couple of Wyatt Earp's brothers, and he just goes on a rampage going after the bad guys. And one of his deputies says to his good friend Doc Holliday, well, if they were my brothers, I'd want revenge too. And Doc Holliday, who's played by Val Kilmer, who has a brilliant performance, says, uh, said, well, make no mistake, it's not revenge that he's after, it's a reckoning. It's a reckoning, which he delivers it so powerfully. Now, a reckoning is a great word. It's not a word that we use a lot. A reckoning is a putting to rights. A reckoning is, is, is turning over every last stone and seeing what's under it. It's the revealing of secrets for good and for bad. It's an accounting for deeds. A reckoning is the administration of justice. Uh, many of you know Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Well, Hebrews 4.13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden, hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There will be a reckoning. 
And throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament prophets, we hear language about a day of reckoning or the day of our Lord. A language about this day of reckoning when the secrets are revealed for good and for bad and everything is brought into the light where injustice is finally confronted. This is uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? This is Hosea chapter 9, a minor prophet. Hosea says, the days are coming, the days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this. Because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person a maniac. Things have gone so amuck that the, the prophet is an idiot, is a fool, is disregarded. There will be a day of reckoning. New York Times in August reported this story about a 95-year-old man named Jaku Pollage. I'm sure I'm destroying that name. He's 95 years old. He's living in Brooklyn, been there for over 50 years. He immigrated to the United States in 1949 and lied on his immigration paperwork about what his occupation was in his home country. And he lived with a secret for 50 years. And this year, he was extradited uh, to Germany where he faced a trial for war crimes because he was a Nazi guard at a concentration camp in Poland. He faced his day of reckoning. God's reckoning, as scary as it kind of sounds, is good news. God's reckoning is something that the world deeply craves. God's reckoning, this day of reckoning, is the ultimate answer to the problem of evil. Why is God letting all this bad stuff happen? It will be dealt with. It's the answer to the problem of evil. It's the response to that prayer that we all pray from time, time and again of anger and frustration of why is all this stuff happening? When somebody does the unthinkable, like yesterday where somebody walks into a synagogue and opens fire, you think, how is it possible that in, in a human heart this kind of a plan could be conceived or, or to mail bombs to strangers? It's, it's the answer when God finally says enough and eliminates this kind of thing from our experience. Um, there is going to be a day of reckoning for those people who use their power to inflict harm on others. And there will be a day of reckoning for those of us who withhold the good that's ours to give from those who most need it. There will be a reckoning for the, our use of power. And God and the world is deeply waiting for this great day of reckoning. Why are we talking about reckoning? Well, for four weeks, we've been talking about power. Power, in my opinion, is one of the most important things that we should talk about and probably one of the least interesting, like, who wants to talk about power? Eh. The power is so important. If you pay attention to the news, it's the exercise of power by human beings. Power was something universally given to image bearers, to, to men and to women, at the very beginning. It was not intended to be a four-letter word, something that's defined by its abuses. In the beginning, it was something good, part of God's good creation. God gave us power and invited us to steward it, to rule over all creation, to make more of it, to multiply Power is at its very best when it, when it causes flourishing. Power is at its best when it leads to diversification and multiplication and, and honoring. Power is at its best when it's doing these kind of things, when it's healing and creating and dignifying. And, and power is at its ultimate best when it's in submission to a higher power. 
This is perfectly seen in the person of Jesus Christ. This Paul said to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited. There was privilege associated with his power, but he didn't use it to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place that at the, name of every, at, at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would declare, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus had ultimate power, but in his incarnation submitted to the authority of his Father and became obedient to the point of death. The second week we talked about Jesus clarified different uses of power in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, James and John's mom comes up to Jesus and says, hey, would you hook up my boys when you get in power? Would you have one at your right and one at your left? And Jesus says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And he delineates different ways of using power. There's the way of Caesar, which is to have power over others. It's to be the alpha. It's to get your way. And we said the way of Caesar taken to its logical conclusion is to kill to get your way. The way of Caesar is about dominating. The way of Jesus, on the other hand, is not about having a power over others. It's about cultivating an under-attitude, Jesus serving under the authority of his Father in his incarnation. And the logical conclusion of the way of Jesus and, and using power in the way of Jesus is to allow yourself to be killed for the sake of others. And the way of Caesar and the way of Jesus meet at the cross, and there Jesus makes a fool of the way of Caesar. And then the Jesus way has outlasted the Roman Empire. The way of Caesar versus the way of Jesus. And then last week, if you were here, Todd talked about institutional power. Uh, the, the New Testament talks about the power and principalities of darkness that's certainly uh, wielded through institutions. We talked about uh, the power of the church, and Todd asked this really simple question, who is flourishing because you have power? And so uh, throughout this whole study, we've kind of been working down a funnel, at the most universal level, power was given to all image bearers, to everybody, to you, to me. Power was given in particular uh, to the nation of Israel in Genesis chapter 12. They were called to be a blessing to other nations. And then there's also this particular gift of power to those of us who follow Jesus with the gift of the Spirit. Jesus said before he ascended, you're going to receive power when the Spirit falls on you so you can be my witnesses. This universal call of power, this particular gift of power to followers of Jesus, and today, the reckoning of power. So in this text in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the second of this little section of three stories. The story about a master who entrusts bags of gold to his servant. To one he gives five bags, to another he gives two bags, and to the last he gives one. It's a pretty simple story. The, the, the one with five stewards it wisely and multiplies it and it grows to ten. The one with two stewards it wisely, multiplies it, grows it to four, and then the last buries his gift in the ground. And we could take this as a, a simple stewardship conversation, but there's something even bigger happening in the context of Matthew's gospel as he's crafting this narrative. And I want you to just hang with me for a minute. And if you have your Bible, it may be useful to you to keep this open. 
So in Matthew chapter 21, uh, Jesus is, is uh, going into Jerusalem, riding on a colt in what's called uh, by some the triumphal entry. So when you went to grandma's church growing up and everybody was waving the palm branches the Sunday before Easter, that's what's happening right here. Jesus is entering the city as a king, and the people are, are, are giving him kingly titles. They're worshiping him. He's the son of David. And in all likelihood, the people are celebrating because they're anticipating Jesus coming in as a king in the way of Caesar. He's going to throw out the Roman occupiers. And so they're like cheering. We're going to make our country great again. This is going to be fantastic. But Jesus enters the city in Jerusalem. And we're going to talk in a moment about what was going through his mind when he did so. But he goes first to the temple. The temple was the embodiment of the presence of God among the people. The temple was supposed to be the source of blessing for the nations. And as Jesus came in the temple, he did not find things in an orderly state. He found things disorderly. He found injustice happening in the temple. And so he kicks over the tables of the moneylenders. He stampedes cattle through the temple. He says, my house was supposed to be called a house of prayer for the nations. And on his way out, he sees this fig tree that should be producing fruit, and it's not, and he curses it, and it withers. He tells a story right then. This is all in Matthew chapter 21 about servants entrusted with a task and how they fared when it came to time for inspection, and they fared quite poorly. In Matthew chapter 22, we're inching our way toward the text we just read. Uh, the religious leaders who have been given power to steward the temple the administration of God's presence among the people are trying to publicly trap and shame Jesus. Israel had long waited for their Messiah, their anointed one to come, and now that he's come, they're trying to publicly shame him and trap him. That's the state of affairs. You get to chapter 23, and Jesus goes on this long public tirade against all of these, against these religious leaders who have been publicly opposing him. He has these seven woes against the Pharisees. This is a, just a sample, 23.15. Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. And he's commenting publicly now because he knows what's coming. He's a man with nothing to lose about the use and the abuse of power by those in religious leadership at the time. As they're leaving, the, Jesus and the disciples are walking along the temple and they're looking at these massive stones and the structure is so amazing. And the disciples with their ever like impressive timing, hey, this temple's pretty impressive, right? Jesus is like, come on, I'm in a bad mood. And he prophesies. He says, you see these stones, these massive stones as tall as a man? They're, the days are coming when one stone's not going to be left on top of another. This place is going to be destroyed. The disciples are, ooh, man. And he warns them to be ready. And that leads us to chapter 25, where we've just read this text. Jesus tells three stories about being ready for reckoning, ready for that inspection. Now, here's the thing. Here's why we walk through those chapters. Throughout all of this, the mystery that's hiding in plain sight is that in and through the person of Jesus, Israel's God has come to inspect his people. In and through the person of Jesus, the master has returned to see how his servants have done with what was entrusted to them. It's Israel's day of reckoning. 
Israel had been entrusted with the promises and the plans of God, this call to bless the nation. And when Jesus comes to the temple, it was supposed to be a hub of blessing, a, a place out of which people should, uh, people should be sent so that there could be flourishing. He sees instead uh, abuse. He sees idolatry in people's hearts. And so in this prophetic, prophetic act of judgment, uh, he says, I'm done with this. He curses the fig tree. The fig tree was supposed to be something that gives life, but it's been rendered useless just like the temple. It has outlived its usefulness. And Jesus prophesies within a lifetime, within a generation, this is going to be gone. And it's true. Forty years later, in 67 AD, there would be the Bar Kokhba revolt where people insisted on, on taking the nation back for themselves. Rome came, back, came down hard. They laid siege to the city for a number of years, and in 70 AD, the city and its temple were destroyed, and the temple to this day is in ruins. Jesus came as the master and acted in prophetic judgment, and yet it didn't bring him any pleasure. And Luke's account of, of Jesus and the triumphal entry, Luke gives us a little glimpse into what's going through Jesus' mind. This is what Luke records. He says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. You're going to try to have your own way. You're going to take the way of Caesar, and Caesar's going to come back hard on you. They'll encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And as he rode in and the people lauded him as the king, a king in the way of Caesar, they so thought, he wept because they wouldn't choose the way of peace. In the teaching text today, the, the first two servants took what was entrusted to them. And the text tells us he, each, he gave, them to, gave it to them each according to their own ability. He wasn't expecting miracles. He wasn't taking someone who couldn't handle five bags of gold uh, and overwhelming them, each according to their own ability. To one he gave five, to one he gave two, to another he gave one. He wasn't looking for miracles. He was looking for them to be faithful with what was entrusted to them, ordinary faithfulness. To the first two who were faithful, who stewarded what was given to them wisely, he said, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with a little. I'm going to give you a lot. Come share in your master's happiness. And you can hear the joy of the first and the second. It's a reckoning. Come share in your master's happiness. You have been faithful. I'm so proud of you. And then it comes to the third who buried his gold and committed the sin of omission. He did nothing. And in verse 30 of the text says, Take him and throw him out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a dramatic image. Ah, weeping. Throw them out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lesson for us about power in the middle of this. The wise stewardship of power, the wise stewardship of everything that God has entrusted to us is supposed to lead to flourishing, and this delights the heart of God. Come share your Father's happiness. I love that you did that. I love that you exercised your power in that way. But there is suffering where those who have been entrusted with power hoard it for themselves, abuse it, misuse it, and fail to use it faithfully. There is suffering when people fail to use power in the way that God designed. At least two kinds of suffering. 
There will be a kind of reckoning and suffering for that person, for those people who, who have failed to steward the power that was given to them wisely. But there's also suffering when people, people with power fail to use it. So look at, look at our city. Look at different pockets of our city where we see suffering. There are examples of people who've taken the power that they've been given and abused it, and others are at a loss. You think of families, you think of, of neighborhoods, you think of institutions where people have used their position and their privilege and their power for their own benefit, and so the vulnerable have suffered. Or you think about places where people who have the power to help do nothing. You can look at our city, you can look at our world, there's evidence of suffering as a result of the misuse of power and the lack of use of power by those who should be stewarding it wisely. One of the greatest sins in Nazi Germany was the silence and the impotence of the Christian church. And there will be a reckoning for such silence in that age, and even in our age, there will be a reckoning for our silence and our inaction. And there was suffering in Germany as a result of the silence of, of the church, except for the confessing movement. The wise and the faithful stewardship of power is supposed to lead to, to, to flourishing, the, the abuse of power, making ourselves little gods, leads to suffering. But the point of the sermon, and as, as we wrap up the series, I want to communicate all of us have been entrusted with some degree of power. We've been entrusted with something. Power, as we've said, is the ability to take meaningful action. It's taking what's been given to you, your resources, your time, your skills, your relational network, putting it in the hands of God, asking Him to bless it, and using it so that others can flourish, so that the kingdom could advance. The wise stewardship of power is supposed to lead to flourishing, but even when it doesn't, we need to be mindful there will be a reckoning. There will be a day of examination. There will be a time when all of the secrets are uncovered for good and for bad, and we're to give an account for what we've done. And we want to be among those people who share in our master's happiness who get to see, experience the utter delight of God, to see the alleviation of suffering among others because we've steward, stewarded our power under the authority of God. And we're in this season right now as a church where we're 10 months old and we're kind of figuring out who on earth we are and what God's called us to do. You know the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament where all the people are like building, uh, rebuilding the entire wall and Nehemiah is so cool because he tells the names of like so-and-so worked on this part and this part and this part. And as a church, we're figuring out what's our little part of the wall. We're praying like, God, you've entrusted us with so much. Where do you want us to be a part of reconstruction and renewal in your world? And I look around this room and at the other service and I think in this room, there is tremendous wealth and education and, and a, a relational network and skills and, and availability and willingness and passion. God, how are you calling us to steward the power that you've entrusted to us? And on the day of reckoning, when each of us have to give an account for what we've done with what's been entrusted to us, we want to hear our master say, well done. Come share my happiness with me. The topic of power ultimately comes down to nuts and bolts. How are you stewarding and how am I stewarding the opportunities and the resources and the, the relationships and the skills and the time that's been given to you? How are you stewarding your voice and your hands and your heart and your ability to just show up? 
Are all of these things that have been entrusted to us employed in our own service to make our own name great or in in the service of something far greater? And this was the invitation of Jesus. Let your first ambition be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and don't worry about the other stuff. I got it covered for you. Let your first ambition be the kingdom of God. And our use of power ultimately comes down to lordship. Who's on the throne of our lives? Is it money? Is it reputation? Is it a nice house? Is it a nice family? Is it, is it your career? What is on the throne of your life and on my life? Who calls the shots? And for all of us, it feels like, oh my gosh, there's great cost if I actually trusted God with my resources. There's great cost if I actually trusted Him with like taking a lesser paying job to do something that I'm called to do, or there's great cost in surrender. But it's like having children. This is how I've always explained it. When Emily and I have thought about having more kids, I'm really good at anticipating the costs. How could I get more tired than this? But when that kid shows up, You see that face, you can't anticipate the joys. And the way of Jesus is just like that. Author of Hebrews says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, surrendered, submitted, sacrificed, suffered, but for the sake of joy on the other side of the cross. And in the way of Jesus, there is a death. Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake is going to find it. What good is it if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? In the way of Jesus, there is a death. But if there is a death, there is also a resurrection. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. My hope for my life and for our community, is that we would be a community that is just bursting with joy, even in the middle of suffering and sacrifice, because we're taking a share in our Father's happiness, our Master's happiness. You've had this experience where you've had an idea, you've had a burden, something that you felt like you really needed to do, and everything within you was sabotaging the idea, but you wanted to do it anyway. And on the other side of that awkwardness, you experienced the joy and the delight of seeing it through. I've been working on Cornerstone for 18 months, and, and people asked me, especially in the early months, what's it like? Like, that choir room back there is more like a choir closet. I was alone for six months over there, and we're just praying and planning and getting things going, and people ask me how I'm doing. I said, I am so full of joy. And there's something in you that God's building. There's something in you that God's been, like, nudging you about, and you're afraid. But on the other side of that fear, on the other side of that death, there's joy, there's resurrection. We want to be a community that shares in our master's happiness. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Let's, let's go in the way of Jesus. Let's share in our Father's happiness. Let's risk. Let's choose death so that we can choose resurrection. Do not be afraid. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you stewarded your power. And it occurs to me in this moment that you continue to steward your power, that you're advocating for us at the right hand of your Father. The 
that's really powerful. You, you've done your work. You could put up your feet and rest. And at the right hand of your Father, you're continuing to use your position of power at the right hand and the second person of the Trinity to advocate and to pray for us who are so forgetful of you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in our weakness, you are strong. In the weakness of our own prayers, you pray for us, that your spirit is interceding on our behalf with groans that are deeper than words. And so, Lord Jesus, whatever you're praying for us, whatever you're praying for the individuals in this room, we say yes and amen to that. Wherever you're calling us to to take up our cross and follow you, give us the courage to embrace shame, to embrace failure, and to join you in your own humiliation that we could also join you in your resurrection. Lord Jesus, would you move in power among your church that we might steward this power, that your kingdom would come, that there would be flourishing on earth, that it would be in, in Tulsa as in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. Move in power. Help us to use our power for your kingdom and for your good. Amen.